Well, you know, I do, as Brad said, uh, really love that song because it does so beautifully tie to uh, what we discussed last week and help set the tone for this week's message as we started uh, a journey into Romans chapter 12. And last week we looked at the beginning of that verse in chapter 12, and it talks about offering yourself as a living sacrifice. And part of what we expressed last week is when you look at that definition for offer yourself, it means to make yourself available. And we talked about what that looks like and that that's the person that's going to pray a prayer or sing a song like the one that we just sang, where we're sitting there saying, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated unto thee. Uh, What a beautiful reminder for us this morning, a great way to recapture what we talked about last week and prepare our hearts for what we want to talk about this week. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his spirit to guide us and lead us. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we love you and we are eagerly expectant. Uh, for your spirit to do a work within us today. God, that you would help us to set aside any distractions, that you would help us to focus our attention on you, God, and once again, uh, pour into your word in a manner that allows us to be changed, to be transformed, to have our minds renewed, God, to help us break free from some of the patterns in our lives that you need to set us free from, God. Help us to come before you now once again, um, overwhelmed with the spirit of gratitude for the love that you have for us in Jesus Continue to bless each and every one of us on our own personal journeys and our journey as a church that we can take all of these things that you've given us and we can offer them back to you and to your glory. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last Sunday, we started off kind of with a new theme for the year and the, the kind of tagline and the anchor for our year as we head into 2022 is a renewed life. And what that looks like. And I kind of tried to share a little bit of the sentiment behind that theme that basically as we fix our eyes on Jesus as we did last year, throughout the year, the net result or the end result of that is that we should look different from the world around us. We, we should change. We should be transformed. And the, the way that we can articulate that transformation is to point to the fact that we have this renewed life and to live as renewed people. And we saw that last week, Uh, When you look at Romans 12 and you introduce this concept and this idea that that renewal really begins with devotion, right? And a life that is devoted in full view of God's mercy. Offer yourself as living sacrifices. All these were ways to describe the devotion that is intended to be offered towards Christ and towards God. And so with that kind of in context and in mind, if I were going to present to you a central idea or, or a theme this morning for us to consider, it's this idea that devotion leads to transformation, right? And we see that in a lot of arenas, right? Not just biblically or spiritually. Let me give you a couple of examples. It was the sophomore year of my uh, college experience. Uh, what college, you asked? The University of Oklahoma, in case you've forgotten. Uh, I was a sophomore in college, and I was getting ready on spring break to go on a mission trip, uh, and I was really interested in this trip. Now, it was going to be Uh, with a church that was going to Matamoros, Mexico, working in an orphanage, doing some service project, and working with these kids. And I was interested in this trip, though this wasn't the church that I was attending at the time. And though I did have a legitimate passion for missions and a certain call towards missions, that was also not why I was interested in this trip. I was interested in this trip because of a girl. And I'm not the first and was not the last guy to do something spiritual because of a girl. But that is definitely why I was somewhat interested in this trip. And so I was down there on this trip in spring break and I managed to capture this picture. There we are. 
all right? It's a long time ago. And this is a very famous picture in the Smith household because I'm pretty sure it's the first picture that Jennifer and I ever took together, the very first one. Uh, And another little interesting side note about this picture, it's actually a selfie uh, before there were selfies, okay? Because we were in college when there weren't smartphones. Pretty sure we took that with a disposable camera, for those of you that remember what disposable cameras are. And, And so we got this selfie, but one of the reasons I love this picture is because it captures a moment before we were dating, right? This was in that phase where it was the fun, flirtatious, kind of exciting, constant questioning of does she like me, does he like me sort of season of life. And we snagged this picture and we come home from this trip and that weekend after the trip, after church, we're hanging out, we get the pictures developed, if you remember what that was like, and we start going through them together and we saw this picture for the first time. And it was that night uh, that we fully kind of opened up about how we felt about each other and confirmed a mutual interest and something became official. So this picture really kind of captures the beginning of our journey together. Now, all that took place at the end of March, okay? And as we moved on throughout the rest of the semester, we only had about a month and a half before we were gonna head off to summer. And so that's not a long time, right? That's not a long time at all. We had about a month and a half to hang out, go on a few dates, which is what we did. Uh, And then summer was rapidly approaching and we were faced with, a need to make a decision. Like what, what was this exactly? Was it going to be exclusive? Were we gonna be able to date and see other people? And that was an important question because we were gonna go and diverge on different paths over the summer. She was gonna go back and intern uh, with her youth ministry that she had kind of grown up in. And that was kind of important uh, to, to, for us to wrestle with this because she was gonna be working alongside a good friend of hers who was a boy who we would come to find out later had an incredibly insane crush on her. Um, And I was going to go work at a Christian sports camp down in New Braunfels, Texas, which is also a a place where it was fraught with different potentials to wreck a relationship if you ever worked at a Christian sports camp. And so we really needed to define what was this going to be. And so towards the end of that semester, we went on a date and we hung out and I told her, I said, I'm I'm devoted to you, right? I am committed to you and to us. I'm not looking for another relationship. I'm not looking for another girlfriend. And she also agreed to that sort of mentality and that way of thinking. And so we go off into summer, and that was, that was really good because by the time I arrived at the sports camp, T-Barm Sports Camp in New Braunfels, you work with 8 to 12-year-olds, but all the different coaches and counselors that are there are college students. And I don't know if you've been in an environment where you put a bunch of 19- and 20-year-old college students together who love sports and love Jesus, but it creates an atmosphere that is ripe for romance, Okay. So much so that there's actually a policy against it. All right, we would gather together as the guy counselors and the the male camp director would sit in front of us and he would say, there's no dating at camp. And we would sit there and be like, "Uh, yeah, excuse me, sir, uh, where'd you meet your wife? I met her at camp. Ah, and did you date at camp? Next question. Like, I mean, they just, we all knew this is what happened. So there was a pattern of behavior at camp, right? There is a pattern of behavior of how you interacted with other counselors, and and there was this, again, this series of flirtations and questions, and everybody wondering, is this the one, and all those different things, and so that was the environment, those were the patterns, and I had to break free from those things, and what helped me continually resist that pattern was to remind myself of my devotion to Jennifer, right, and that's how we both navigated through that summer, it made us stronger in the long run, because devotion leads to transformation. It changed 
our behaviors, right? We see this in so many different arenas. We see it with marriage, right? We, we see it uh, whenever you make that commit to marriage, your life changes. You, you, if you're gonna make a devotion to your children and to parenthood, your life transforms and changes. If you devote yourself to a career path, your life is going to change. Devotion leads to transformation. This is especially true in our commitment to the Lord, right? If we're gonna devote ourselves to Christ, our lives are going to change, right? And they should change. They should look different. And we're gonna need to break free from the world around us. And that's what we began to really discuss last week when when Paul describes the extent of this devotion to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. It was all reminding us of the sort of devotion that will ultimately lead to transformation. And it's that transformation, the depths of that transformation that we're going to look at this morning. So grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to continue reading through the first two verses that will help set the tone for our year. As I mentioned last week, uh, we're going to finish discussing these two verses today, and then we'll take the next two weeks to finish out this month by looking at an actual story and narrative from the Old Testament that speaks to uh, a renewed life. Uh, But let's finish off today. We're going to read verses 1 through 2, but only focus on verse 2 this morning. It reads, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. All right, so we have this call to no longer be conformed to the patterns of this world. We have a lot to dig into when it comes to the nature of this transformation. And Paul begins in verse 2 by this uh, reminder that we should no longer conform to the patterns of this world. And part of what we see there is that this conforming is speaking to the idea of modeling your behavior after the things that you see in the world. And what it teaches us is that if you are going to try to pursue this renewed life, if you're going to try to pursue this devotion to Christ, one of the greatest threats that you're going to encounter, one of the greatest potential disruptions to that renewed life is the world, right? And the world simply means the current age. It's it's the philosophy, the way of living, the the, the innate, uh, innate tendencies within the human heart. It's the world around us that is often going to confront and challenge our ability to maintain that sort of devotion, right? And so we should no longer conform to the patterns of this world, right? We are called to be in this world, to be witnesses to it, not to conform to it. And so in order for us to really wrestle with this this morning, I think we need to do a little bit of what you saw take place in the children's message, right? Let's think for a moment, what are the patterns of the world? And what is it that we have been called to to break free from, right? And, And when we think about the patterns of the world, I would tell you that this list that I want us to at least consider this morning, it's not exhaustive, right? There are a number of different things that we could review together today Uh, And and the list that I'm going to present to you, it varies in nature, meaning some of them are a little bit more serious than others, but I'm trying to create create a little bit of a holistic picture of all the different patterns that can easily lead us astray and challenge our ability to devote ourselves to God and to Christ, right? And so when we think about certain patterns, let's, let's pick one that's somewhat obvious, like greed, right? Greed is such a natural tendency of the human heart. Right, this, this quest for money, this love for wealth or possessions and all those different things, that's a natural impulse. And we see it manifest itself in a number of different ways. 
came across an article on money.com that was written in 2017, and it was written around the time of Valentine's Day, and they did this kind of, uh, I guess, clever survey with a bunch of different respondents, and the, the primary question on this survey was, what would you rather find? What would you rather have, true love or a million dollars? And the majority of those who responded to the survey said a million dollars, right? Now, it wasn't an overwhelming majority, but it was a majority. What stood out to me as I looked into the details of this particular survey is that 44% of married couples said a million dollars. So 44% of married people were like, you know, I love my wife, but a million dollars sounds pretty great too, and chose money. Uh, And that is a good example of the impulses we have towards money. That same survey indicated that 70% of the respondents expressed anxiety and concern over their financial security. We worry about money. We aspire to acquire more money like greed. And this impulse is a pattern of the world. That greed is often not just focused on material wealth, but oftentimes pleasure, right, and indulgences. We see this manifest itself. This is a definite pattern of the world, uh, especially when we start thinking about lust. A lot of times those lusts can be driven towards things that are related to substances like alcohol or drugs, but I think one of the most common ones that we have to consider is sexual impulses and lusts. I was looking at some of these statistics and, and came across one on covenant eyes, and it indicated that, the every, that there are 28,258 users watching pornography every second. Every second, 28,000. That's a massive pattern in the world. But here's what really was concerning to me as I was reading through those statistics. 90% of teens, 96% of young adults would either encourage, accept, or feel neutral about the use of pornography. It's so entrenched. It's such a pattern that we have conformed to. It's actually accepted and in some ways encouraged. Right? There's a a pattern towards that sort of lust that has to be confronted. Right? And one of the reasons it has continued to grow in, in that sort of acceptance is because of the accessibility. Now we're all carrying these smartphones around with us that create a certain ease with which we can engage with that sort of content. And so maybe on another level we should think about patterns is technology use. We've talked about this before in the extensive use to which we are connected to our devices. I found this interesting that around uh, the average smartphone user touches their device more than 2,000 times per day. Heavy smartphone users touch their device 5,000 times a day. That's how frequently you're touching your device. The average American user uh, will be on their smartphone screen for 3.9 hours a day. Do the math, that equates to 27.3 hours per week. You wanna know why you feel so busy? because you're trying to fit seven days into six, because you've already allocated a full day of your week to doing this, right? It's a pattern. And when we spend time on that device, not only are we potentially engaging in content like the ones I just referenced, but all these other things are happening as well, right? Loneliness is another pattern of this world. NPR published a magazine back in January of 2020 referencing a study that was done by Cigna that indicated three out of five Americans report feeling lonely. That was before the pandemic. Now, in addition to that study, what was also shared in that article is that a lot of that correlates to how we use our devices. 
because a lot of that is through social media. Heavy social media users, 76% of them report feeling very lonely. What's interesting is the less you use social media, the less lonely you feel. Right, so light use of social media, that number dropped from 76% to 52%. Right, and so these patterns create disconnection. They make us feel lonely. Not only that, it creates another pattern in the world that we're seeing today, which is misinformation. Another very popular topic. Forbes has indicated that 86% of Americans get their news from their smartphones and their devices and these platforms on these devices. And it's creating a tremendous problem of misinformation because the platforms that are on those devices are not designed to present to you what is true. They are built by algorithms that are only designed to increase your engagement. Right, so in the same way that you drive down the highway and you are instinctively inclined to look at the wreck and slow down and focus your attention in it, if they can put anything in front of you that's gonna look like a crisis, that's gonna look more sensational, that's gonna engage your attention, that's what they're gonna feed you. And as soon as you engage, they're gonna give you more. And the last thing they're asking is if it's true. All they want is engagement because it's monetized, and it's greed. So now we struggle with understanding what is true. We have patterns of misinformation and now you throw in a, an increasingly hostile political environment to add to another pattern of our world. Now more than any time in my ministry career have I seen more and more people define themselves and, and shape their lives around political ideologies more than their faith. Like it, it's incredible how that has transpired and how it continues to happen at an alarming rate because what happens is it creates this divide and this hostility that we now see in our country because the more entrenched I am with this particular affiliation, then the more I see the other side as the enemy. And that's created a very dangerous trajectory. Right? This was another uh, research project that was done by the University of Maryland and was quoted in the Washington Post recently that in the 1990s, around 10% of Americans thought violence against the government was justifiable. In 2010, that number went up to 16%. 2015, it went up to 23%. Today, it's 34%. You see the trajectory, right? Because we have this entrenched sense and we're getting angrier, another pattern in the world. Do you ever feel like the world's just angrier now? People are just bent up and have all this aggression. One of the best ways to see that right now is air rage. Anybody seen any recent videos of people going off on other airline passengers or flight attendants? It's become such a problem that Congress has actually noticed. They had these congressional hearings from these subcommittees recently. And in those hearings and in these interviews, some very interesting statistics and quotes were offered. Through 2015 and 2020, the commercial aviation industry was seeing a peak in unruly passenger behavior and investigations into them. They had to conduct 786 investigations into unruly behavior from 2015 to 2020. The first nine months of 2021, they had to do 789. 2021 outpaced the last five years in which it was peaking. 86% of flight attendants say that they now have to deal with that sort of behavior. And the quote that came from, uh, I think her name was Sarah Nelson, uh, who indicated in her interview uh, with Congress essentially said that if these trends and these numbers continue, then we will see more complaints and more misbehavior from unruly passengers in one year than we have seen in the entire history of the commercial aviation industry. These people are just angry. See the picture? You see the patterns? These are just a few. See the picture of these people 
Sometimes ourselves, sometimes people we know who sit on a device thinking about their own sense of self-worth by how much money they own or how much money they don't have, engaging in content that they know is destructive for them, isolating themselves, feeling disconnected, defining themselves by a certain level of identity with a political ideology or affiliation, growing in a certain anger and hostility. This is the pattern of the world that we're seeing emerge all around us. Is it yours? Like what patterns do you fall victim to? Do you find yourself being compelled more by what you can acquire or what you have or don't have? Do you find yourself driven by certain impulses of indulgences? Do you find yourself driven by a need for anger or, or power or all those different things that we're seeing? Have you conformed to the patterns of this world? Now, the, the challenge with going through a list like that is that really what we're doing is we're describing symptoms. And if we take this verse and just try to leave here and combat all these different patterns that might emerge, we're gonna spend our lives playing whack-a-mole and being like, is that a pattern? Is that a pattern? Is that a pattern? Is that a pattern? And we're gonna exhaust ourselves, right? Because what we really need to do to help combat it is not to try to focus on a long list, but to recognize that those lists are symptomatic of a disease, right? And if you can treat a symptom all day and never get better, but once you identify the disease, that's where you can really find a cure. So what I would suggest to you this morning is you walk through those sorts of patterns in this world. If we were going to identify a source, if we were going to be able to identify the disease that is contributing to those things, I would suggest to you it's pride. That to me is the heart of every sin, right? It's the rhythm of the world. It's the voice of the world. Live for that's what we're inclined to do. That's why we want to acquire. That's why we want to indulge. That's why we want to defend all those different things. Live for self. That's what we see in the garden, isn't it? I mean, that's where it all started. To share in the tree of knowledge of good and evil was a pursuit to be like God. To break away. To be on your own. To live for self. So the more we can recognize that our inherent bent in nature, the source of all those different symptoms and patterns is really attributed to this impulse to live for self, then the better able we're gonna be to combat it. Because what the gospel tells us to do is not live for self, don't give in to that nature, transform it, change it. Right? The word transform is metamorphomai which is where we get our word metamorphosis. And it is speaking to the very idea of changing your nature, right? It's bigger than just behavior. This is bigger than just altering your, your morality. This is about changing the very essence of your heart and your nature. That's what transformation is speaking to. It's speaking to that fundamental change, right, to transform yourself. And that is exactly what we find when we are given this invitation from Jesus, right? Jesus says something very different than what the world says. Jesus says, come and follow me. Take up your cross daily and die to self. What we see is the fundamental shift that takes place when we give this devotion to Christ and transformation begins is we no longer live for self, we live for Christ. Right, that transformation takes root, no longer being conformed by the patterns of this world, but trans. 
transform your life. And what we begin to see is that we start to care more for the poor than for what we can acquire. We begin to care more about purity than indulgences. We begin to care more about servanthood rather than power, right? We see all these different things begin to take place. We begin to see that transformation. And so with Paul offering that transformation, the question that we naturally need to ask ourselves is how? How do we transform? How do we break free from these patterns? And that's when he points to the renewing of your mind. The word renew means exactly what it sounds like, to be made new. This is the essence of the gospel. The old is gone, the new has come. That's a very important piece for us to never uh, stray away from especially in our culture, because another pattern that we see in our culture is you do you, be true to yourself. You were born this way. This is the natural way to it. Like this is how God made you, all those different things. And we begin to convince ourselves that change is impossible. The minute you believe that, you're veering away from the gospel. The very essence of the gospel is change, (laughs) to be made new, to be transformed. That's the sort of renewal that needs to take place. Now, most scholars would point to this point of this verse and say that the sort of renewal that is taking place here is a constant reminder of your devotion to Jesus, reminding yourself over and over again that you've devoted yourself to Christ, that you're going to offer yourself to him, right? And I think that's a pretty important piece for us to understand what devotion really is and how this renewal takes place in our mind. Right, because I think one of the things that we struggle with when we try to cultivate our relationship with Christ and we begin to try to figure out what does it mean to live a renewed life is a lot of times we reduce that relationship to decisionism rather than to devotion. Right, so I've made a decision, decision to follow Jesus and I can point back to a moment where I prayed a prayer, where I got baptized, where I walked down an aisle or whatever it was I did. And so that was enough. And that doesn't work in any other arena to make it just a decision, right? Like, I don't get to, as a husband, wake up every day and say, you know what, I'm gonna live however I want, and I'm I'm just gonna disregard the needs of my wife, the commitment I've made to her, any of those sorts of things, and I'm just gonna do whatever I want, and I can rationalize that behavior because on August 21st, 2004, I decided to marry her. That was all I needed to do. Right, being a husband is a daily devotion. (laughs) Same thing with parenting. Right? I don't get to just say, you know what, I'm going to neglect my responsibilities of a father. I don't need to worry about my kids. I don't need to worry about teaching them, pouring into them, investing them. I don't care because I'm tired. I'm ready to do my own thing. I decided parenting a long time ago, and that was all I needed to do. Decision is always insufficient. Parenting is marked by devotion, daily devotion and renewal. That's what he's saying. The renewing of your mind is waking up each and every day and saying, I have devoted myself to Jesus, and I'm going to demonstrate that devotion once again, and that will transform this nature where we begin to break away from living for self and begin living for Christ, right? So it'd be nice if the verse ended there, but it's actually even more in-depth than that, right? Paul takes us even a little bit further on what takes place as this transformation occurs. And what happens in the last part of verse two that I would suggest to you is now he's helping us understand how that's sustained. 
right? How that transformation isn't just momentary or fleeting, but how it can be maintained and sustained. Because what happens, very interestingly, is that devotion will lead us to a very fundamental question that we should be asking ourselves on a regular basis. And I would argue we are asking ourselves on a regular basis. The question is, what is God's will for my life? Right, when you wake up each and every day, you are going to confront a series of choices. Right, you're gonna be confronted with all these different moments, all these different opportunities. And in those moments and those opportunities and in those choices, you're gonna ask yourself, what is God's will for my life in this moment? And you're gonna have a choice to either live for self or live for Christ. It's an ongoing assessment of what is God's will. And then you can zoom out and look at the collection of all those moments, all those decisions, all those choices, and you can look at a higher level and begin to ask yourself from the lens of a career, through the lens of purpose and calling, and begin thinking, am I actually living according to God's will for my life? This is a question we always ask. In fact, we see this modeled in Jesus. Right? If Jesus demonstrated anything through the course of his ministry, it was a continual submission to the will of God. Not my will, but yours be done, was his prayer. And so his followers are supposed to exhibit the same behavior. And so here's the progression. Devotion leads to discernment. Right? As we're transformed and that nature changes, it leads us to these places where we encounter these moments, both big and small, and confront this question, what is God's will for my life. How do I know it? Right? Essentially, we are called to test and approve God's will. Now, what does that look like? I want to make sure we understand what's being said here, because it is not suggesting that God is coming to you for your approval. Right? It's not as if he's like, hey, I got a really good idea. What do you think? You want to approve it? Like, we all know that's not how it works. Right? That's actually, we've translated it as two words in the English language. It's one word in the Greek. just just means to thoroughly examine. Right, so we are called to thoroughly examine the will of God for our lives in moments, big and small, and to operate not based on, well, this is what I think, this is what I feel, but to really examine what God's will is for us in those moments. And so in order for us to really kind of dive into this this morning, I, I want to first consider how we do that by establishing the right mindset we need to have when trying to seek God's will and then talking about just a few tools that will help us examine, to help us test and approve God's will in our lives. Let's first think about the mindset. Um, I think we all recognize that understanding God's will for our life is not easy. Can I get an amen? Right, it's hard at times. It's not simple. And so a lot of times it can feel elusive. And so we need to have a healthy mindset. Here's the first thing that I would say. Um, is that God can handle our mistakes in our pursuit of his will. And you're going to make mistakes. Discerning his will uh, will be filled with mistakes. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was 16 is when I really began to devote my life to Jesus and try to transform uh, and live for Christ. And so that found itself, um, I guess, manifesting itself in a lot of different ways in a 16-year-old kid who's just trying to figure out what that looks like. One popular thing that me and my friends did at one point is we thought we just needed to get rid of all the CDs that we listened to that weren't worship music, right? And so we were like, man, we're going to show our love for Jesus. We're going to get rid of all this devil music. We're going to burn it. We're going to run over it, you know, because it's from the devil, you know, and we just were trying to be really extreme. And so I decided to take it up a notch one day, and I went home, and I just 
kind of unilaterally decided that we were going to get rid of every rated R movie in my house. So I did. I like went and grabbed a bag and I filled them all up with all the rated R movies. These were the days of VHS. Disposable cameras and VHS is referenced in the sermon today. I'm feeling old, right? So I'm filling, filling the bag and I walk out, throw them in the dumpster, didn't talk to a soul about it. Didn't tell anybody while I was doing it. Didn't ask if it was okay. I had decided that it wasn't good for me or anyone else to see rated R movies at this point because I was 16 and I knew better, right? That was a mistake. <laughs> that was not necessarily God's will, right? God's, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to miss it. We're not going to always figure it out, right? That's part of the challenge. But there's a certain intent and a desire to find God's will that is the right mindset to have. It reminds me of a conversation I had with Dr. Jack McGorman when I first got here. And I were talking about our own personal callings and how we ended up doing what we were doing professionally. And he said as such, all right, he said, I, I truly believe when we're trying to seek out God's will, he can handle our mistakes. Sometimes we'll miss it and get it wrong. And then he paused and he looked at me with this certain intensity that I'll never forget. And he said, but willful disobedience is a terrifying thing. And he's right. He's right. So one of the mindsets that we need to have is understanding that, yeah, absolutely, God can handle your mistakes. And the devoted life that's been transformed, that's seeking to test and approve God's will, it won't be perfect, but it'll help guard you against willful disobedience because that is a terrifying thing. Right? And so we need to guard against that willful disobedience. We may make some mistakes along the way, but let's think about the tools that we have at our disposal to help test and approve what God's will is. Right? Several that I would suggest to you this morning. Prayer, it's a relationship. Right? The, the less you talk to God, the less you're going to know what he wants. A lot of times we do exactly what I referenced earlier. We're going to base our understanding of God's will for our lives on a feeling on a thought, well, I think he wants this, I feel he wants this, it needs to be anchored and covered in prayer. Right? We need to look and trust in the spirit of God, right? to know that the spirit of God leads us more than the spirit of flesh. We need to understand that God has fully revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And so to better understand your will is to fix your eye, or his will is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Right? And one of the best ways to govern our prayers and to understand his spirit and to understand Jesus is to saturate ourselves with his word, to pour into his word. I've said this time and time again when this has come up, what God really wanted you to know he put down in writing. And so the more you feast on his word, the more you do so through prayer, through trusting in his spirit, by looking at Jesus, the more you're gonna be able to encounter those moments, big and small, and be able to discern what his will is for you. Those scriptures, those stories will come flooding back to your heart and mind so that you can break free from those patterns of the world and live according to his plan. Uh, one example for me, again, that I often think back on is when I was in college and I was in a fraternity house, Again, a pattern in the fraternity house. One of the many patterns that were not exactly God-honoring was that people in the fraternity house where I was going loved to fill their lives with profanity. It's just how they spoke. It was, a, it was a vernacular. It was a language. And I'll never forget one day riding in the car, and a friend of mine said, Jerry, why don't you cuss? And the first thing that came to my mind was Ephesians 4.28. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth but only what is beneficial to building others up according to their needs. And we talked about that. 
Now, have I always lived up to that? No. Right? But because I'm trying to thoroughly examine the will of God in those moments, big and small, this word begins to become living and active, and it helps us navigate those moments so that we can better discern what his will is. These are the tools that we have to use. One other tool that I would encourage you to have, other people that will point you to the word of God. People in your life that are not gonna just say, well, I think you should do this, I feel like you should do this, but what does God say? What does word say? And drive you back to those things. Man, we do that, then all these moments, big and small, we'll be able to discern his will. So there's one last part of this verse as we begin to wrap up that I think is pretty important. Right, you're seeing the progression. Devotion that creates this transformation ultimately leads to discernment, and that discernment is gonna be what allows us to sustain this renewed life. And one of the things that Paul offers here as we begin to try to discern his will is a description of the will of God, that it is good, pleasing, and perfect. I think that is so critical in our ability to sustain this sort of renewed life and to sustain our devotion. Because what I'm willing to bet is that every single one of us in here could be able to acknowledge and confess there are numerous moments in our lives where God's will did not feel good. It did not seem pleasing. It did not seem perfect. And what I think Paul's doing is reminding us to trust him. Speaking to those moments where God's will seems a little off seems a little bit more difficult to trust. He's saying, have faith. His will is good, pleasing, and perfect. And you'll be able to trust it. We struggle with those things for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we struggle with seeing that God's will is good because our definition of goodness is different than his. You've been in those moments where it's hard to see God's will for your life, to trust in its goodness, not see it as pleasing or perfect. His definition of good is often different than ours. Again, this takes us back to the garden. We wanted to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil so we could determine what was good for ourselves. And so a lot of times, that's what we want. And our definition doesn't align with God's on several occasions. And so what we need to do is to trust in his goodness, even when it doesn't make sense. We need to remember the relationship that we have with God. We are his children. And much like many of us can relate to in our own homes, children often don't know what's good for themselves. Right? Child can come up out of bed, 11.30 at night, be like, I want sugar. Give me a pound of sugar. Mom and dad are gonna say, no, you don't need sugar. And the child will kick and scream and cry Say you're unfair, you're mean, you're cruel, sugar sounds good, and may even go to bed hating you. But you don't give them sugar because it's not good. A lot of times that's our relationship with God. We're coming to him and we're saying, God, I need sugar, I want this, and we'll kick and we'll scream and we'll cry and we'll say it's unfair and we'll say he's, he's being too harsh because our definition of good is different than his. We have to trust in his goodness. We need to be reminded in the goodness of God. We need to know that his will is pleasing, right? To know that his will is pleasing is to be reminded that we are made in his image, that as he is the creator and we are the created, he knows what's best for us. He knows what we need. He knows 
what it is that's going to be most satisfying for our hearts, our souls, and our minds, that we will find the greatest sense of fulfillment and pleasure in living for Christ rather than living for self. Right? It's such an interesting paradox of the gospel. It's like working out. So many times where we sit there and we go, gosh, I really don't want to do this. This is painful in the midst of it. But as soon as we're done, we find satisfaction. We find fulfillment. We find that pleasure that we're longing for. It's very similar. The world is going to try to lead us one way that's going to, uh, the allure is this is going to be more satisfying. God's going to lead us a different way. The world's going to say it's better and more fulfilling and satisfying and pleasing to acquire. God's going to say, no, it's better to give. The world's going to say, no, it's better to live in luxury. God's going to say, be content. The world's going to say, give in to those impulses and those lusts. God's going to say, give in to self-restraint and purity. Choose intimacy rather than intensity. The world's going to say, pursue power. He's going to say, choose humility. The world's going to say, choose hate. He's going to say, choose love. The world's going to say, be afraid. He's going to say, fear not. Time and time again, we're going to find that to live for Christ is going to give us the greatest satisfaction and the greatest fulfillment that the world could never provide. His will is pleasing, and it's perfect. The idea of it being perfect reminds us that he has a plan. He has a plan. What's hard for us is that we're not at the center of it. (laughs) He is. We're not the hero of this story God is. His plan is not designed to satisfy every want and desire that you have. His plan is intended to exalt Christ. And when we see the will of God work itself out in such a way where Christ is exalted, then that's perfect. Even if it makes us uncomfortable, even if it's hard, even if we don't fully understand. I think Paul is anticipating the inevitability of life when we encounter all these different moments where it's difficult to see his goodness, it's difficult to see that it's pleasing, it's difficult to see its perfection. He's saying you need to sustain these things, to sustain this devotion, to trust in this will is to remind yourself continually that God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. Which leads to the final thought, and I love this progression. I want to give credit to uh, Frank Gabeline, who has uh, written, or at least presented this concept, have paraphrased it a little bit this morning. But as you read Romans 12, 1 through 2, and as we read it through the lens of what is this renewed life that we're trying to pursue, and, and how does it describe, what is, how, do we, how do we find itself begin to reveal and manifest itself in our lives, we see devotion is the beginning, verse 1. It starts with that devotion, a devotion that will obviously transform our very nature, transform our very impulses and desires, our instincts, and that devotion leads to discernment, a discernment that is necessary to maintain that transformation, to maintain that devotion, where we continually encounter these moments, big and small, to discern God's will for our lives. Devotion leads to discernment, which leads to delight, right? When you begin to trust and know And anchor yourself in devotion of Christ to trust in his will that it is good, pleasing, and perfect. We become people of joy. (laughs) You want to be set apart? You want to look different than the world around you? Be joyful. Even when it's hard. Even in the midst of suffering. Even in the midst of hardship. Delight yourself 
in the Lord. Devotion leads to discernment, leads to delight. A renewed life is a life that is marked with joy. Are you joyful? Where are you on this journey? You see, I think a lot of us, maybe our struggle is with the devotion parts. Our hearts are devoted to the wrong things, and we need to refocus as we head into a new year. Some of us, we struggle with the discernment part, right? Maybe we, we wrestle with understanding God's will for our lives because we either have the wrong mindset or we're not using the tools that he's given us. Maybe some of us are really doing those first two things pretty well, but we don't have any delight. We aren't people of joy. We've lost a sense of just how good and pleasing and perfect his will really is. This is to me what helps set the tone for our whole year as we begin to collectively as a church say, let's pursue the renewed life together. Let's look different from the world around us. Let's be people who are marked with devotion, discernment, and delight. Let us choose not to live for self, but to live for Christ in every way imaginable. So that, to me, is the tone that sets us up for everything we want to discuss this year. So let me tell you, church, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. Don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you can test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we pray that the words that we have reflected upon today, God, would once again shape us, not just for a few moments within these walls, but with how we live our lives beyond them. God, that you would take everything that you work within us and transform us. God, that you would take our offering of ourselves to you, that when we cry out, take our life and let it be consecrated to you, God, that you truly would transform us, you would change us, you would renew our minds to see this world as you see it. God, that we would be able to encounter all moments, big and small, with the ability to discern in those moments what your will is for us and to trust it. Father, to, to rest comfortably, continually being assured by the fact that your will is good, pleasing, and perfect. God, help us to be devoted. Help us to discern. Help us to delight in you. Help us to no longer live for self, but live for Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.